Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, one of your hosts today, and the other host sitting across from me is Aaron Cameron. Our guest today is Jonathan King. He's a partner at Bogdan Newman Currency Architects. And interestingly, he's also the uncle of a former podcast guest, uh, the Noah Gordon episode from about two years ago. We like to celebrate random things on the podcast, so we're celebrating <laughs> first relationship, yeah, first, first, family first, relationship. first family relationship on the podcast. There you go. For no other reason than, actually, we have no reason for doing it. <laughs> but that's how we did get introduced to Jonathan, but we've got an expertise that we have not uh, had on the podcast before, something new and interesting Obviously, Jonathan is a, an architect, and we are today going to talk about building design in general, and we might get off the little path to some alternative you know, building designs. But as a starter, given that you know, our, our listener base might not be entirely familiar with the way architects works, we kind of want to jump into you know, Jonathan's career and how he interacts with the, with the real estate world. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. Hello. Glad to be here. So, I mean, let's just start with architecture and, and what made you want to be an architect and how you kind of ended up in the field in the first place? Oh my God, what a question. <laughs> That's a tough one. Actually, the path that I took was actually not quite as linear as, as one might think. Some architects absolutely know exactly where they're going to go, uh, you know, coming out of the womb. You know, they, they want to do design and they want to get involved. I took a little bit of a, a circuitous route, I'd say. I actually studied sociology of all things coming out of school first, out of university. And it wasn't until my later years, um, when I was looking to figure out what the next challenge was going to be, that a professor actually suggested to me, you know, that architecture was was something that I should look into, given all my other sort of separate interests. I was fascinated, and I involved myself with with the arts, sculpting, painting, photography. And as I started to explore what architecture was, it, it became evident to me that. The there was a synergy between the built form and and in fact how people interact with one another, and that really for me was the sort of the genesis for my career path as as an architect. Did you take that advice and jump right into uh, the, that concept, or to take a little bit of time to sit? And no, stew? I did. I, I I jumped right into it. I started exploring. Actually, <laughs> I interviewed a lot of architects, just trying to understand exactly what you're trying to do now. Is what is an architect, and and what do they do, and, and you know what is their involvement and impact on, on our environment, and and so that was my first challenge. You know, I was coming from an academic background, and so I, you know, did that academic thing. And finally, uh, it made sense to me, and I started looking at different schools. And I finally landed, actually, uh, a decision to go to the UK, to London, to England, to uh, to study, because I thought that was actually the, probably the best place. How many schools in Canada have uh, like an architecture degree? Oh. Uh, is it a lot? Like, I'm, I am so ignorant to it, I'm sorry. But yeah, I- well... You know, every major, every province pretty much has a has a, a university has and a school of architecture. Yeah, so uh, you know, UBC, U of T, actually Ontario has quite a few. Okay, uh, there's Carl. Okay, so there's lots of ways to get into the field if you if you so choose. Absolutely, absolutely. But the UK had the best destination in your mind. UK had a, an interesting opportunity for me. The school that I, I actually ended up choosing was the Architectural Association School of Architecture. That's a long, long description. But it is the oldest English-speaking school of architecture in the world. Mm-hmm. And they do things a little differently. And it suited my interests. And uh, so I, I packed my bags and off I went. 
And then the day you graduated, did you pack your bags and come back or did you stay there? Well, I, I uh, graduated during uh, a, a bit of a recession and certainly the recession had hit uh, the UK. And so, yes, I did pack my bags and I did go back to Canada. I, I actually moved to uh, Vancouver of all places. That was where I, I grew up and started my career there working for a couple of firms as I moved moved through my uh, my exploration. I also took a little bit of a hiatus and I, I actually be, became a little bit of a developer. I developed some properties while I was there. and, and Went to the dark side for a went bit. Went to the dark side and took advantage of the fact that Hong Kong was about to uh, shift over. Hmm. And so there was a lot of money pouring into BC and Vancouver in particular. And so taking advantage of, of that. And uh, How was that experience going from design side to you know being more... I guess, omnipresent in that, in that sense. Let's just say it grounded me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wasn't as easy or was just, you know, just more of a headache? What's the... Uh, I, well, headache, yes. No, it, it grounded me in that it made me understand what it takes to build a building and to build and to develop and to go through the entire approvals process through, you know, through the city and to find money and to to schedule and, you know, do all of those things that us as architects touch on the periphery, but we actually don't necessarily have to take on ourselves. And so it gave me a real appreciation for the process at the scale that I was working at, for sure. So then why did you, um, I guess you exited obviously that career uh, a while ago, (laughs) what led to the exit? Just circumstances, kids, family, and uh, opportunities that led me back to Toronto, actually. Okay. And was that, was that uh, BNC? No. Oh gosh, that, so this goes back to the, uh, the late, 90s, uh, sorry, yeah, the late 90s. And uh, so moved back and I was still very young. I was still what they call an intern architect. So I wasn't a registered architect. And so I needed to get more experiencing, more exposure to uh, different types of building types and, and how to work and how to deliver for clients. And so my exploration involved going and working at different architectural practices. So one notable practice that I worked at was Diamond and Schmidt Architects. Uh, you, probably heard of them. Kazian was another firm that I was involved with. HOK was another firm that I was involved with. And so going through and learning learning the trade, so to speak, in those various firms at, at various sizes and scales and, and typologies. So everything from institutional type of projects, universities, colleges, hospitals, to uh, condominium design, high-rise design, also commercial projects as well, to some degree. Like infrastructure, is that what you mean by commercial? Or- well, when I say commercial, I mean like office office oh, okay. buildings sure. and retail buildings. Um, so I'd like, I'm curious about the the process for how you get involved in a project. You know, if there's a bidding process or proposals, like a you know an RFP that gets done, and just you know maybe walk through that. And I, and I guess maybe in the same vein, what kind of research you have to do even just to get the proposal in front of the developer. And I'm assuming a developer, and maybe I'm wrong, and correct me if I'm wrong, kind of says, okay, I, I hear the three shortlist architects that I think I'd like to use on my development. How does he go about? How does the developer go about choosing an architect? And how do you go about sort of selling yourself to that to that developer? Sure. Well. One would like to think they seek you out uh, okay. and, and they, they want to call you up or you meet at a cocktail party and they go, wow, you're the best thing since sliced bread. That's not always the case, although it has happened. Right. Oh, but but there's probably relationships where the, relationship, know, the developers just go to you and you, they, don't, they don't go and yeah, shop the market or absolutely. whatever. Absolutely. Right? Well, so I think the first thing you have to understand is it very much depends on the, I call it typology. What type of building type are we talking about? If we're talking about institutional buildings, universities, colleges, hospitals, it is very much driven by a public 
procurement process, mm-hmm. uh, an RFP process. And so you put in your proposal based on the criteria that have been set. And they ask you lots of questions about your team, your your thoughts on how you're going to deliver the project, obviously the fee, what experience you have in the past, and, and you put your best foot forward and you submit the package and you hope for the best. And hopefully you'll get to the next stage, which is a an interview. And then you get to tell your story and and explain what you're you're all about. Sounds onerous. It is onerous and and that is is it's actually one of the most onerous parts of being in practice. And I I suspect some firms don't even bother with it. Well, that's true. A lot of firms don't. We we at BNC, we in Bogdan Newman Currency don't actually do a lot of proposals of that sort. We we rely on relationships. We rely on both relationships of which we've got long-standing ones going back 20, 30 years. In some cases, the firm's been around for about 50 years. So it's it's got deep, deep experience in that regard. And so what we tend to do is we get invited to RFPs often. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a more limited contest. And we still go through that process of, of putting together the package, the proposal that, that, you know, defines who we are and what we are and what our experience is. But at that point, usually the, the client has a sense of what it is that they they want and who they want to uh, initially talk to. And so it's not a cattle call. You know, you're not competing against 20, 30 sure. different firms. You're competing against, you know, three, four, five firms. And, uh, you know, and those odds I like, you know, I can, sure. I can handle those odds. And those tend to be the type of RFPs that, that you'll get from, private institutional clients, which is a lot of what we do. You get them from commercial clients as well. You get them from multi-res and mixed-use clients as well. So it's a, it's one that we we understand better. I mean, and sometimes if you're if you're so lucky, you'll get a client who just says, "I want you." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, which is which is yeah, the dream, right? Which is the, the dream, easiest. but it, it yeah. like I said, it, it does and it does happen. It's, it's got to be fascinating because I, I guess a big component of why a developer would want a particular architect is that the visions are aligned, right? Because I can imagine when they're in that sort of designs phase that you want to do it one way and they have this vision of another way, and there, it, there can be some conflict there, or is it more or less you? Your, he's the the money. So if he says, I want to do this, I want this material, you just do it? Or is there more of a discussion base? Well, I think you have to understand it's it's a process. Any any project is a process and it's a long drawn out process which starts with what can we build on the site? What is possible? A client will come with with their vision uh, or their their idea. They've they've done their analysis. You've 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 seen those packages mm-hmm. where it says I can, uh, based on what the city is allowing me to do, I can build this much GFA. I can I can get this much density. I have to accommodate for this much parking. Okay, now what can we do above and beyond that? And so they come with a, a vision for themselves of what that is going to ultimately look like, and they have a sense, hopefully, what the the cost of doing that is going to be. And then they come to us. And they say, "Okay, could you test this out for us?" And uh, we'll do. We'll often that that often is the start of the relationship and the um, the exploration. And we'll do uh, we call it a feasibility study or a test fit, and that allows them to take their their understanding for us to involve evolve it for them to then turn that data those those stats that are generated from that evaluation back into their pro forma to determine whether or not the project. Makes, makes sense. sense. And is that would be on a like a structural basis when you say feasibility? When we hear feasibility study, we probably think of something radically different, Aaron and I. It would be just a whole pile of numbers. So can you kind of elaborate on what that is? So when we do a feasibility, what we do is we 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 literally 
determine what we can build on the site. So we'll we'll actually lay out a building. We'll understand what what the parameters, what the opportunities, what the restrictions are based on what we understand to be, you know, the the various planning regimes that are going on in the site, you know, setback requirements, envelope requirements, and we'll actually lay out in very broad brush strokes, very high level what you can actually achieve. I mean, the, and then what we'll say, okay. Meaning, you know, a podium with two towers or a podium with one tower and some townhomes ex- or whatever. Ex- exactly. Whatever and then like. you'll understand what the efficiency is going to be. And then you'll, you'll understand what your leasable space might, in fact, you can achieve from that. And that gives you a, because there's, a, there's ultimately a difference between what the, the first expectations are versus what the reality is. The site, every site is different. Every site has its constraints. And you might think that you can achieve X number of parking spaces per level, but you might find that because of the specifics of the site, you know, you don't have your your clearances to achieve a highly efficient parking garage because you also have to accommodate a ramp. Or you have the to, ingress and egress requirements or whatever. All of those be, things. Right? So we factor and we take all of those things under consideration and we lay it all out in very, like I said, at a very high level. And then what we do is we from that flows the stats. You know, the like I said, the floor plates, the leasable space, the the efficiency level, and and then we go, okay, if we were to go to the city and we were to say, okay, I know that the requirement or the, the restriction is that we can only build 10 stories, we're going to go for 20 stories. What does that look like? So that's, that would be the next step in the process where if the client says, you know what, if we can achieve 50% of what we are hoping to achieve, the project is a go. Mm-hmm. And we'll then perhaps go to the city with the client and we'll help them understand what, where the push and the pull might, in fact, be. Right. How often are you going to community meetings? I mean, a lot of times you end up with this sort of nimbyism. We know, present. Not in my backyard. And then it's, okay, what are you giving back? Is it, is it more parkland? Is it you know, art? Is it high-quality condos? I mean, there's, there's that debate and the rage is all across the country. Absolutely. So we are at those community meetings and we are the storytellers we have to tell the story and and what the opportunity is for that particular project for that particular community and we have to put on our bulletproof vests and we have to go in there and you know sometimes it's it's a love-in and sometimes like you said it's a bit of a it's a bit yeah. of a battle i've and seen some that gets you know there's yelling matches at times absolutely right? and yeah. so that is that is part of the job absolutely so I assume that obviously you're talking about doing designs at a high level. It's an iterative process when you actually go to full completion. So how many how many versions or iterations of a design would you do on average? And what was the the most you've ever done for a project? Oh my god, there's no there's I don't think there's any one set expectation. I mean, you'd like to be able to hit it out of the park the first time round for sure, but things change. I mean, markets change. We've we've been in situations where you know the client at the last moment says, you know what, the market has changed. We can't, if we're talking about, you know, residential for a minute, we can't sell the ratio of, you know, ones and twos and threes to what we thought. We need to reconsider. And so we'll go back to the drawing board and we'll replan those things. Now, there's things that you can do in order to provide that level of flexibility in in the design, but obviously there's impacts. You know, you change your unit count, the parking ratio changes. And so you need to be aware of all of the the pros and cons and the impacts associated with that. And so we do it. And so it's a tough one to answer. I mean, you like to think that you you go back to the drawing board, you know, a couple of times and there's there's no one that ever hits it out of the park. But, you know, we've we've done it, you know, 15, 20 times sometimes as as you evolve. And, and like you said, it's an iterative process. So you're constantly evolving. 
Now, you, how often do you get involved when it's pre-zoned where the, the developer said, I think I can get this zoning, so build me based on what I think I can get. And then, of course, you know, they go through the process with the city and come back with something totally different. Is that, does that change? Or do you kind of say, no, no, I'm not going to bother with you know, spending the time and energy and effort until you've got the zoning in place, and then we'll move this forward? So the, the natural progression of a project is as follows. We call them different stages. So there's the pre-planning or the schematic design phase or the actually concept phase. Then there's the schematic design phase. And typically that aligns with the first submissions to the city. That is the rezoning application. If there's okay. a rezoning okay. going okay. So to you're involved with the, the very SPA, start. absolutely. We don't get into a level of detailed design until after we receive comments from the city and understand whether or not we're going to really have some hurdles to to do. Ultimately, once the client has got some level of comfort that what they're wanting to do or what we're all collectively wanting to do is achievable, then we'll head into construction documentation. And that's that's really the the, the documentation of what the building actually is going to be in order to construct it. But that doesn't typically happen until much further along in the process. And so that represents at that point 50% of the project. Okay. So you've, you're, gone you're well into it. You're well into it by that point in okay. time. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And then what, what part, um, obviously you got into architecture, I guess, from a, an arts background. At what point in the process do you get to inject most of that aspect into the design? Right out of the gate. So, I mean, so you, you, you mentioned community meetings. So you know, one of the things that you need to do is you need to sell a vision. You need to sell a vision both to your client, but you also need to sell a vision to the community and to the city in order to actually ultimately achieve the outcome that you're looking for. So that is that is right out of the, the, the first part of the project and the first part of the process. Obviously, you need to get the planning right. There's no question about that. But along with the planning, you want to build you want to build something that... To be proud of. That yeah. you, well, not only that I want to be proud of, but my client wants to be proud of. Of course. How often do you say no when a developer approaches you and says, I, I want to engage you as our my architect? I, I've envisioning, and we'll, we'll do one scenario and then we'll go to another scenario, which will segue into some of the other stuff we want to talk about. But, you know, someone shows up and says, I just paid the, the highest price per acre on this land. I've already bare skin in my margins, thin on my margins. So I need to design something that is as cheap as possible, right? And I want to build only bachelors and, you know, I want to max this thing as high as I can. Do you kind of go, you know what, that's just not a project that I want to get involved in? Like you just, you can kind of see the headache coming. We do have that happen from time to time, not as much as you'd imagine. We would hope that before someone invests in a site, they come and speak to us mm-hmm. and and let us help them do that initial feasibility assessment to determine whether or not they're going to buy something or not. I mean, we do our due diligence as well to determine whether or not a client is a good client. We need to do that because, you know, you want to, you're investing a lot of time and a lot of money into it, and they're ultimately going to have to commit to uh, a relationship with us and the associated fees. And so we and work closely sure. with them too. It and we're cl- like, we're yeah. psychologists in in many ways. Mm-hmm. You know, we're dealing with we're dealing with you know some very very important aspects to you know you know as I said, my background is is it goes back to the sort of. Sociology, sociology and psychology and, and and really what you're trying to do is to build spaces and but at the same time you're also trying to you know deal with aspirations in the development of the project the aspirations of the client aspirations of of his stakeholders as well and so you need to really marshal all of those disparate forces together to achieve you know a, a cohesive solution 
And then the other scenario is, you know, a developer comes and says, hey, I've owned this land for 70 years. Don't worry about the costs. I just want to build something special that, you know, that we can be proud of for generations going forward. And that's probably, I would imagine, sort of you, that just your eyes uh, light up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that doesn't happen a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Which one happens more? Which scenario is more? more it's, a bal- it's a balance of the two, for sure. <laughs> So let's segue into the kind of the stuff that you're you're excited about right now, and and you had you had mentioned sort of this mass timber build earlier in, before we started recording, and maybe let's talk through what that is and and how you got involved in it. Sure. So mass timber. So first question: Do you guys know what mass timber no, is? No. All right. So mass timber is not your two by fours, two by sixes, two by eights. What called stick built construction. Mass timber is is what you typically would recognize if you were to go down onto Spadina, go into the uh, warehouse district, take a look at your what you call brick and beam. So it's uh, exposed wood ceilings, exposed wood columns, and those things, as you can see, are large, massive pieces of wood. Sometimes you know timbers that have been you know hewn. the The ceilings themselves are are often what they call NLT, nail laminated timber, but there's all sorts of different technology out there now, NLT, DLT, CLT, and all of them have different attributes associated with them and different different construction qualities associated with them. And for anybody not from Toronto, that is a downtown area where the buildings would be north of a uh, hundred years old, I think. For sure. And 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 those buildings, and you'll see that there are there are a lot of similar types of warehouse type environments. And those tend to be with fairly regular grids and they have beams. And when I say post and beams, so I mentioned the columns, I mentioned the ceiling, but I also want to mention the beams. And so the beams are, you know, go from column to column and they typically drop below the, the ceiling space. And uh, historically we're built as sort of manufacturing. Warehouse manufacturing. Yeah. Exactly. And so in Toronto, those have been repurposed. And uh, they become, Allied REIT being the biggest player in that market, probably. There you go. Yeah. So absolutely. And so there's a lot of examples of that. And they've been repurposed to offices and creative other uses and, and retail and what have you. But those buildings were built about, you know, 100 years ago or so. And uh, there hasn't, frankly, been a lot of those types of buildings built in the last... 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And that is because of changes to the building code, just the focus on different means and methods of construction, concrete, steel. And as a result, that technology has really fallen by the wayside or up until recently. And uh, and so fast forward to today, it's it's actually seen a resurgence. There's been changes to the building code, which has allowed us to actually build up to six stories in wood. And, and when I say up to six stories. That is actually in stick construction, mm-hmm. two by fours and, and so on and so forth. But it's also allowed mass timber to be considered. And the reason why mass timber is really interesting is it's A, it's sustainable. It's a renewable resource, which unlike concrete, unlike steel, is plentiful in, in our part of the world. Mm-hmm. It's actually very quick to construct, much quicker than concrete, in fact. The barrier to... Uh, it being possible to build up until recently has been the the perceived cost of construction. The perception is that steel and concrete is is cheaper. But those prices are coming down as more manufacturers, more fabricators are coming online. I was going to say, part of that must be that you can can put a lot of the components together off-site. Right. Yeah, Show you hit up. it on the right. you hit Show the nail up, on the head. In. It's almost like Lego. Absolutely, and so that is in fact what has spawned the the recent 
the recent in uptake in in interest. And so there aren't a lot of projects right now, and we can we can point to two or three of them in Ontario and Toronto specifically that are um, private in nature. But most of those other projects that are in mass timber are public institutional buildings. There, U of T is building one. George Brown College is building one. York University is building one. They're all building institutional mass timber buildings at the moment. Is that through a commitment to sustainability or is there an economic driver currently behind it? I think it's a, it's a commitment to sustainability. I think it's also an interest in the, in the typology as a, as a whole. But there's also something that's really unique about wood. Wood, as you know, I mean, you go into a building that has exposed wood, you feel good about it, don't you? I mean, it's, it's, it's a fantastic space. It's very different from walking into a building which is concrete ceilings, concrete floors, concrete well, you columns. Don't, you don't even see it. It's just drywall hiding concrete uh, columns. It, right? Well, exactly. Exactly uh, like we're sitting right now. Right now, yeah. correct. Where we're sitting right now. And so there's, a, there's a, this intangible quality that's associated with it. And there's plenty of studies out there to demonstrate that, you know, being living within and working within and being exposed to wood and natural materials generally is is actually good for you. It's actually a very positive positive experience. And so that, in concert with this resurgence in the focus on sustainability and the cost that's coming down, has really kind of focused everyone's attention on on looking at wood as a as an alternative to the other means of uh, what about durability? I mean, do you think concrete structures would last longer than a than a mass timber structure, or is that just a? I think that's well. Think of it in another way. Go to Japan. Those buildings in Japan, many of those buildings in Japan, have been around for a thousand years, built out of wood, and it's just about how you construct it and how you you know how you maintain it. There's no difference. So you're working on a specific project in uh, the junction here in Toronto. Yes. Yeah. So we're we're involved in a in a really fascinating project at the moment. It's a hundred fifty thousand square foot eight story mass timber hybrid building. I, I guess we call it hybrid because it's a combination of mass timber, concrete, and steel, and twenty thousand square foot floor plates. And we're we're well into the approvals process as we speak. We've actually achieved some very interesting outcomes in meetings with the city where we've actually gotten our proposed design approved at a very early junction. It's called an alternative design compliance model, which has allowed us to, and this is the interesting part, it's allowed us to actually expose almost 80% of the, the wood in the building. And, and that's a bit of an achievement because the current codes offer up as a solution to allow for wood building, mass timber buildings over eight stories to being what they call encapsulated in drywall. So just like I was, we were talking about yeah, you can earlier. You wood, but you have to cover it up. You have to use, yeah, exactly. Which we, we all said collectively, including the client said, you know, what's the point in building a building out of wood if you've got to cover it up in drywall? And that's actually what they did out at UBC. I was mentioning that there's another tall wood building that was constructed out there. It's an 18-story building. It's actually the tallest, currently the tallest wood, tall wood structure in the world think that's going to be not for too much longer mm -hmm. but you go there and you can't tell that that building is wood because every inch of it except for i think the top floor is covered up by drywall so we said as a as a mandate for the construction of and the design of this building to ensure that we could actually celebrate the wood and make sure that people who are working in that building and this is a commercial building would be able to experience the wood in all its glory so we've got 
exposed wood ceilings. We've got exposed columns. We've elected to go with a polished concrete floor, massive windows, and it's going to be an absolutely phenomenal experience once once it's finally constructed. And the biggest in Canada, and the, the biggest. Time. Thank you. Yes. yes, and and the biggest in Canada. I, there are there are other buildings that have been recently either completed or in, under construction in the in the private sector, and I think this is the distinction that I wanted to make. You know, eighty Atlantic, sixty Atlantic. Those are those are two projects which are are out there as we speak. Those are, I think, five stories, uh, five and six stories. I those believe are, those are Liberty Village, and those Liberty are mass timber, mass timber buildings as yeah. well. We're breaking we're breaking some rules here and making our own. And those are those we're, we're moving up to seven and eight stories. And in order to get past the six story cap, is that where the hybrid aspect comes in that you're also using other building materials? That's where uh, we go to what's called an alternative compliance model. And that's where what we need to do is we need to demonstrate to the authorities having jurisdiction that we are meeting all the life safety requirements of a building that would be ultimately delivered to yeah, like I, I suspect there's also a misconception but I, that building in in british columbia the ubc uh, mass timber building i mean the the infrastructure of you know elevator shafts and you know all the hvac systems that are required and you know is it strong enough i mean that's again you think well the concrete structure with the rebars inside of it that that's going to clearly you know have the strength to support everything that you need within the envelope of or within the um the towers of the building, but I could clearly, I, you're, the, the look on your face, clearly that's wrong. That The wood is strong enough and can support anything that, that you would put need for the infrastructure. Absolutely. I mean, look, every every building has to be engineered appropriately. And so if you're going to be using a material, you have to make sure that your material is used appropriately and meets all those those requirements, whether it's earthquake requirements that are out in BC or, you know, your life safety requirements to ensure that, you know, in an event, people can exit the building safely within a specific period of time, you, you need to make sure that all of those things are in place. And, and that's no different anywhere in Canada that you're, you're constructing, whether it's concrete, wood, or other. And I know that the economics of it is not what you focus on. Obviously, the design is, but if we can you know, speculate wildly for a second. Uh, given the energy or vibe of that area, and again, for anybody not from Toronto, it's a very trendy area outside of Toronto. Some would call it a hipster area. But having that kind of space available with that style of build would command a premium in that market for the rents that are going to be achievable. For anybody, any group that's image focused is going to fit a certain sector very, very well. You know, I wouldn't want to speculate at the the premium, but what, there the, would net, be one the net there. effect of rent. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's you. I think you indicated it was not pre-leased, right? That is building is being built on spec. Correct. I mean, obviously, there's there's interest, but there's, I think, it, there's a lot of interest. I suspect because of the design that it's almost build it first, let people see it, and you can almost even increase your premium that you can charge for just because of how how attractive it'll be. I can't speak to the strategy that our developer client is sure. taking. We can uh, though, so <laughs> you, you absolutely can. Uh, I, I, like I said, it's it that that's not my area. Sure, uh, sure. But certainly, it is as you said. It is in a location which is highly desirable. It's it's a tech hub. Yeah, in, yeah. In so growing many, quickly. and growing quickly, mm-hmm. and I think that this type of of offering is is very much in line with the type of. What's going on in the neighborhood? That are going on in the neighborhood, absolutely. So, on the mass timber or tall wood Mm. is obviously a little different than, as you mentioned, the six story stick frame. When that announcement came out about two years ago, that you go from four to six stories here in Ontario, the speculation then was there would be widespread adoption of that building method for six story buildings. 
And then I guess once people got into it more, these savings weren't realized. Can you comment on on that style of build? You know, not mass timber, but the two by fours and the four by fours, and maybe why it's not working as well as people thought. So I've had some exposure and some experience with uh, stick built and and up to six stories. What I can say is that the degree of coordination and detailing is far more complex than say if it was a concrete building. And so I think that there's, there's, there's a lot more involved in making sure that you meet all of those intricate coordination items. And so I think that that is frankly what's challenged. And I know that there's, a, there's plenty of folks out there that are looking for ways to streamline their processes and workflows to ensure that, you, you know, to deal with that particular issue. I mean, everyone is looking for the ways to perhaps modularize mm-hmm. their construction techniques in order to actually achieve some some levels of efficiency and certainly that that is something which is is actually being done done down in the US and and certainly there are developers up here builders up here who have who've created facilities that actually enable that type of modular building modular building solution but it is i think it is a bit of a, it continues to be a bit of a challenge and it, i think that at the end of the day what it might come down to is volume. I think that once there's always going to be a learning curve, and I think that's the other aspect of it. There's always a learning curve in when you include a new technology or a new way of building that you need to not only learn how to design it, you also need to educate authorities having jurisdiction how to review it and how to deal with it. But you also have to develop building capability. Mm-hmm. And so builders and this is i think part of the real the real challenge when you get up to six stories you're you're starting to deal with life safety issues and more a level of complexity of building which is more akin to mid-rise or high-rise types of projects but the expertise in building wood buildings are actually in the low-rise sector so builders who have historically built two and three story houses and townhouses are now being asked to build four and six story Building, apartment, apartment, apartment rows. Apartment rows. Yeah. And that learning curve is actually really challenging for them. And so it's a question of do you do you use the technology or the, the systems and the, the methodologies that are that are associated with mid and high rise and try to deliver those types of projects, or do you use the technology and systems and methodologies from low rise builders and apply it? And so the question I think is still outstanding in terms of the answer is is what is the best way to do it? And I think that that is what's going on at the moment, and I think they'll get there. I, th- I think they'll absolutely get there, but I think that's where the challenge currently lies. The cost of land's got to be inhibitory, too, right? Because I mean, it's why build six story stick when if you can get the density. I guess is is the the real question. It might make more sense in secondary and tertiary markets. It would be my instinct, not that I've crunched the numbers. It might do, but what you're what you're now finding is that in larger scale developments, there is actually a requirement or an expectation for municipalities to have a, a larger variety of typologies, mm-hmm. a larger variety of both low density, mid density, and, and, and some level of high density. And so developers now are actually focusing themselves on providing a broader range of offerings. And so they are, even within you know the 905 and the, the outer regions, at the same time as developing single-family homes, providing an area where you've got a series of townhomes, stacked townhomes, and, you know, these mid-rise offerings as well. You mentioned uh, rising cost, Aaron, and the uh, concrete costs have been rising rapidly in the last six months. It'll be another accelerant. Steel as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it could definitely accelerate the learning curve on the uh, stick build. 
another project kind of on the theme of, you know, alternative designs. You mentioned that you're working on a project in Peterborough. It's a large repurposing project from an institutional to multifamily, which is not normally a jump you see in, uh, in too many uh, repurposing projects. But can you uh, kind of give us the, the, the details of that one? I can try. So our firm really loves taking on challenges. Um, and, and so, you know, whether it's the mass timber type of project or whether it's a, a project of this sort where a client comes to us with a problem, they have a, a development and they're looking to, in this case, repurpose an old hospital site, a decommissioned hospital site. It's a campus with several buildings on it. And the city is very supportive of his endeavors to actually create a new residential community within the center of the city. And so what we're engaged right now in doing is taking several of those buildings, one of them is a, a patient building, and working within the constraints, let's call it that, of the existing structure, finding a new way to repurpose it and to build, in this case, uh, rental apartments in that facility. We're also looking at, uh, there's another building that we've got on site, which is a, a power a power station. So in that case, what we're doing is we're, we're gutting out that power station, we're or in filling a number of floors and adding a few others and developing it again as, as, as rental apartment buildings. And so it's, it's actually really exciting for us because, you know, it's, it's a very sustainable approach. The intent here where possible is to maintain as much of the existing buildings as we possibly can. And I think what it's ultimately doing is it's actually creating really fantastic spaces for any potential tenant in that community in a place that you wouldn't normally say. So we're getting out of the, you know, the the glass towers as we talked about them before and and getting into something which which has a grounding in in somewhat natural materials. I mean, in this case it's it's brick, mm-hmm. brick and concrete, but we're exposing where we can all of those natural materials for the benefit of of those occupants. How many square feet are you trying to convert here? What's the, the project size? So it's got to be sizable. So one of them is about 100,000 square feet. So it's not a huge, huge, I mean, I'm taking building by building. I think he's on phase, we're on phase three or four right now. So that's about 100,000 square feet. The powerhouse is, is a smaller building. But we're also taking some leftover area of the site and we're we're building a, a actually a, a new purpose-built rental, which will be, I think, 10 or 12 stories when all is said and done. And so given the the differences in the structural layout of uh, an institutional facility to mm. apartment. Are you ending up with units that have a kind of unique designer flavor just to accommodate the uh, conversion? Every unit is different. Absolutely. Imagine just I'm envisioning walking around a hospital and you've got, you know, there's, it seems like, you know, an elevator around every corner you go through and there's, you know, one ward will have a big sort of, secretary desk or the sort of nursing station with a big open space and then there's a whole bunch of small little rooms around the outside some with no windows some with no windows so yeah they're yeah so they're kind of designed with big courtyards in the middle i mean so this one is this one's really fantastic i mean it's an old it's when i say it's an old decommissioned hospital this building was built i believe it was 1913 Hmm. so turn of the century and and so it is a a brick building with punched windows pinched window openings and built like a rock. I mean, and it's fantastic. So you're working around some very interesting structural challenges. Uh, what side of the city is this in? Do you remember the name of that hospital? I have a suspicion that my wife and my mother-in-law were both born in this born hospital. Born in the hospital. Yeah. So it is the original the original, yeah. the original Peterborough uh, Hospital. I guess the the street that runs through it is Armour Road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Neat. 
And then in terms of uptake in the market, is there has there been interest in the apartment? I guess this would be out of your kind of realm of responsibility. Mm. But I got to think that there would be at the user end, you know, unique spaces, especially in the apartment uh, arena, would be would be valued. You know, and the older architecture would be also be valued. So speaking of unique design and the differences in design, obviously, you know, we're sitting right now in downtown Toronto. We can see a whole ton of towers, you know, surrounding us, specifically condo towers and to a lesser extent apartments. Can you comment at all on the the difference in design between the two and you know also related what we're kind of seeing in the the similarity in all the condo designs. I don't know if uh, it offends your sense of aesthetic the way it offends maybe other people's, but uh you know it'd be great to get an insider's view on that. Okay. Well I guess I mean, to start, there's a fundamental difference between a, a condo and a, and a rental apartment building. And I'm sure that others have talked about that to some degree on previous shows. And you've, we've heard about it in uh, you know, many, many forums. And, and, but just to sort of rehash that for a second, I mean, a condo, the focus of a condo and the, the focus, more importantly, of the condo developer is you know, to get in and get out as quickly as possible. So first cost is king. You know, they, they need to reduce their first cost as much as possible, but at the same time offer a compelling, a compelling offering that uh, they can sell at the end of the day. Obviously, the difference in that scenario versus a purpose-built rental is that someone is hanging on to that building, the purpose-built rental, for a very long time. And so the discussions are very different in the design process as a result. You need to understand issues of durability. You need to understand issues of life cycle cost. You need to understand the fact that you are selling and reselling the same space over and over again in perpetuity. And so you need to then take that programmatic difference and deal with it. And so, you know, how do you deal with it? The first thing that you do is you build an envelope, a building envelope, which is actually not only meets the minimum criteria for what what is required to keep water and and the elements out but is something that is actually going to over time be maintainable and last you also need to build mechanical systems and electrical systems that are going to be efficient fuel efficient and and actually maintain low operating costs over time let's talk a little bit about program you know that condos have certain amount of amenity that they provide and some provide more and some provide less, but often they provide as, as little as absolutely possible in order to meet the minimum obligations uh, or set out by the planning requirements of the city. In a rental apartment building, on the other hand, like I said, you're selling this thing every single year and your largest challenge is to reduce churn as much as possible. You want to succeed in reducing churn. So how do you reduce churn? Well, I mean, there's a number of ways. You you keep your costs down. You keep your rental rates down. That's one way. And obviously, that's not necessarily the best way. But the other way is to actually create a great environment, a place where people actually want to actually live. And there's plenty of studies out there that show that if you can create a community, a place where people want to live and, and stay, and in fact, actually create neighbors that they actually want to hang out with, the likelihood that they're going to leave that building drops dramatically. And so what that plenty of studies have shown, and, and certainly the, the experience down in the U.S. demonstrates, is that by providing great amenities, to, by providing great programs, when I say programs, I mean things like happy hour, 
things like uh, yoga classes, I, you know, providing amenities like dog washing stations, providing amenities like, you know, more than just simply the multi-purpose room or the gym, but actually providing a high level of amenity actually helps the bottom line at the end of the day. And so those are the fundamental differences, at least how I see it, between that of a condo and that of a, a purpose-built rental apartment building. I actually just recently toured a building. It was um, one of our previous guests, John English from Tricon. They just completed a, a large tower at uh, Sherburne and Bloor, which is just off of uh, kind of Midtown Toronto. And there they had you know an, an Amazon room that includes refrigerated units, a gym that was like 10 or 16,000 square feet, an Oliver and Bonaccini restaurant attached to it, a swimming pool area that you could have food delivered from the Oliver and Bonaccini restaurant to you poolside when you're relaxing with your friends. They were really on a, uh, a big push for amenities for that exact reason. Exactly. Because yeah, turnover is expensive. Turnover is expensive. It, it, it is the most important. In, you know, impactful part of any operation in their facility. And so, you know, not only, and that's why whenever I, you know, have these conversations with our clients, it's, it's not just simply about the design and the, you know, the making, getting the program right. It's also about the operation. They got to get their operators, you know, locked down and in a program that makes ultimate sense to them. And so you want to, if at all possible, bring them on early. And make sure you get them, A, you get them right, but bring them on early so that they can have input into the design process so that they can actually buy into the the concept as well. So you mentioned that apartments are built to last. Does that imply the condos are not built to last? Well, I think that the the how do I say it? The way that the focus of any developer is is as I said, you you get in, you get out, and after you're out, you're out. One would hope that they do the right thing and they make the right decisions and they build they build with durable materials and they build appropriately. You know, obviously they are going to meet all the requirements and and they do. But you you will see a variation. I mean, and there's there should be no surprise when you hear stories about, you know, failing balconies, glass balconies and failing windows and and leaking condos. And I mean, th- there's plenty of stories of that down in out in Vancouver, you know, stucco buildings that have failed. And that's as a direct result of these conversations. And I believe there was a large lawsuit associated with uh, that as well. All the ones that are built in the 90s. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It must be frustrating for you as an architect that has sort of an eye towards sort of a, des- a nice design to almost feel like it's a waste, right? They've, they've taken this opportunity to build something that's, you know, supposed to last, that's going to be this beautiful, this beautiful structure. And it just turns out to be this, another glass, you know, square. Well, I, I call it the healthy tension, right? The healthy tension in the design process. You want to balance the, the limitations that, you know, any development has in their budget mm-hmm. with getting it right in the detailing. And so that is, that is the cross that we have to bear. And, you know, we do what we can to, give the the best solution that we possibly can within the constraints that have been placed before us. So that leads me then, Jonathan, to kind of where are we going? What what's the what kind of do you see any trends changing, any any new designs, any new materials that are going to be used, you know, that you think right now are kind of at the the preliminary stages? So I think that what is ultimately going to force change and direct change in terms of Envelope design, I think that's what you were talking about or, or referring to. I think it'll come through legislation, legislation of better envelopes, uh, better efficiency. There have been changes in the, in the current building code and in the, the ones that are coming up, which are going to d- 
demand that the quality of the envelope is going to meet certain performance criteria. And as a result, that by its very virtue is going to require us as an industry to reconsider our options. There are plenty. And when I say that, it doesn't mean that we're going to not be building with glass or window wall systems or curtain wall systems. But what we're going to be doing is we're going to have to consider those and push those materials to new places so that we can meet those criteria. I mean, left to our own devices, it's not likely to happen. I think it's it's ultimately going to be through a legislative process at all. And, and mass timber is a good, maybe a good example of a material or a, a, a you know a construction style that's coming back or. Being used more prevalently. Well, absolutely, and and so that that comes back to the sort of structural systems of the building, and and it just makes eminent sense to to consider those those systems as alternates to, like I said, concrete steel, etc., because the costs are coming down as as our system, our understanding of those systems, and and our ability to actually use them comes down. So right now, there's a bit of a premium, you know, five, ten, fifteen percent premium associated with them, as we're finding, and I fully expect that those premiums will will actually level out over time as we get better at it and as we have more fabricators and manufacturers who are you know working in that that arena but a welcome development no pun intended if if we're starting to see a change in just the style and design of some of the some of the structures that are going up particularly in Toronto and Vancouver but i suspect it's it's the same across the country oh absolutely i think it's it's fantastic what's happening now and i think that there's you know, always going to be this evolution as a result of new technologies, new systems, new materials that come on online and our ability to sort of incorporate them into current design. And do you agree with most of the guidelines in the uh, building code or is there anything, areas that are really lacking that you would, if you could wave a magic wand, you would change? No, I, I think I think that the building code is is a very thoughtful, considered series of documents. It's a living document for all intents and purposes. It gets reviewed on a regular basis and, you know, meets the, you know, it's meant to be there to meet minimum. Let's remember this. I mean, the building code is actually there to meet minimum life safety requirements. And so it's critical that we have such a document that we can, we can use and, and, and operate under. As long as it's flexible and they remove silly things like drywall covering wood or whatever, (laughs) whatever they are. Sure. That would be the change, yes. Yeah, yeah. sure. Absolutely. Uh, Jonathan, I would say that, yeah, this episode I've learned a lot because this is not my area of expertise. We appreciate you, know, you coming on and sharing you know, sharing a lot of interesting things with us today. And I want to thank our listeners for listening. I want to thank, of course, our sponsor, First National. And Jonathan, we'd love to have you back on in the future again. Thank you so much. I really did appreciate having the opportunity to chat with you guys. And it was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.